Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Welcome to the fifth encounter of the Bullshit Artists. I'm Rory Verado here with Jack Crittenden. How you doing, Jack? Sweet as a nut, Rory. <laughs> How about sweet? you? <laughs> um, I'm good. I'm good. good. I have my uh, second shot tomorrow for the uh, vaccine. So I'm looking Excellent. forward to that. Excellent. Then you'll be uh, out in the streets. Yeah, in the crowds. The rabble. <laughs> in the crowds. Maskless. <laughs> Of course, yeah. we have no mask mandate in this state any longer. I know. Yeah, it's just been maddening. But uh, whatever, at least I'll have some measure of comfort in a couple of weeks. Yeah, some security, some sense of improved safety. I don't know. <laughs> Slightly. Yeah. Who the fuck knows, yeah. man, yeah. at this point. But uh, yeah, so we, I think you had mentioned, we have some things we want to talk about, but you mentioned maybe some, you have a few housekeeping items you wanted to right. raise. Right, a couple um, one is, as you know, I had uh, brunch with Debbie Campbell, who was happy enough to receive a shout out from us, but was mortified when she claims that I had truncated the context in which she made her statement, which I think is a fair comment on her part. Sure. So I told her that I would elaborate a little bit on what she had actually said. So the context was that she was talking about hormonal changes in men and women that after a certain age lead to uh, sometimes slight, sometimes I'm going to say heavy debilitation. So uh, she mentioned menopause for women and then went on to say that women often experience uh, mental fog or brain fog, lethargy, um, maybe some decision-making impairment at some level. And she wanted me to make sure that readers, readers, listeners and viewers understand that men also go through hormonal changes and they can have similar kinds of experiences. Mm. So I said to her, yes, that's true. I will say that on the air, but let me emphasize that the context in which we were talking was about the shooting, the murder shooting, however you want to describe it, of Dante Wright. Uh, and uh, since it was a female officer, I was talking about what Debbie described as menopausal changes. Okay, that was the context. So I think it was perfectly fine for us to talk about it in those terms, but I just did want to elaborate a little bit on the context in which she made her comment. That's fair. It's always tough uh, paraphrasing somebody, you know, from one setting to another. Uh, so yes. Sure. Yeah. So I, I think in in my defense, I do not believe I I misquoted her or misinterpreted her or even failed to paraphrase. It was mm. just a, a shortened or a narrowed context. Uh, but that led to leads to another uh, small housekeeping point. You and I had mentioned, but we had 
very quickly glossed over one element that I think is crucial in policing. Mm. And I think it also explains, or no, I shouldn't say explains. I think it also addresses a comment that you made, which is <laughs> that it's insult of our intelligence uh. to suggest that Officer Potter, I believe her name was Potter, made a mistake, that that defies credulity. Right, that she had mistaken her gun for her taser. Right. Yeah. But what I wanted to mention, which I, well, what I wanted to elaborate on very slightly, unless you want to go into this in more detail. Sure. Uh, is something that we had both mentioned, and that is police training. Mm. We had mentioned it as a problem, as a weakness, but it is, it, we need to be clear on this, deplorable. Yes. So it's completely within, within the bounds of reason, I believe, to suggest that Potter made a mistake because her training was so minimal. Mm. And as an officer on the force for 20 plus years, she was so removed from that training that she could very easily have made that mistake. The ongoing training for police officers is even more deplorable than the initial training they receive at the police academy. Sure. I don't even know that they really receive much of any ongoing training. I mean, perhaps something like a, an in-service day, you know, <laughs> once a year yeah, or something. They, like. Apparently, they have classroom work and kind of book learning. Mm. I, I think if you if you look, I have not looked at the statistics on this, but if you if you spend the time looking at the average number of hours spent per month on the firing range, it's like two hours a month at the most. Right. So people wonder why are these officers emptying their clips into these unarmed assailants, suspects, fugitives? Well, because they don't know any better. First of all, they can't shoot any better right. and they don't know any better. And they're, they're probably afraid to even handle their weapon with that minimal amount of training, uh, yeah. you know, monthly upkeep. Yeah, it's uh, it's I would think they were on the range. They'd be on the firing range at least a couple of days a week. You would think. <laughs> because the, here's the other problem with, with the training. They're really given four, four choices. Baton, use of a baton, use of mace, use of a taser, or use of a gun. Right. I guess they their all, hands, but that's not really. Or their hands, but that, yes, that, that's going to get them in trouble. Right. Uh, but. And, and I can come on to that in a second, but these are all violent responses. Right. They're not, I don't know how much training, I would say none, but that may be an exaggeration. How much training they receive in de-escalation of problems, in, in negotiation, in, in right. <laughs> moderating. I, I don't think they get any. Probably he, none. I mean, that speaks to my point also last time of like, anytime the cops come, it represents an escalation not a de-escalation, almost always, Probably, perhaps in significant part because of what you were just saying, that the only tools in their, at their disposal are violent ones. Yeah, it, yeah, that's right. And so we wonder why do these things turn violent? Because those are the only tools available. Now, you mentioned the use of hands. Mm. I, you have, I know for a while you were working out in a gym boxing 
Yes. Okay. I'm not suggesting that, that <laughs> the use of hands means punching people in the face. Although I think that's far better than shooting someone, even tasing somebody or clubbing yeah. them with a baton. But they don't know how to use their hands. I, I studied martial arts for five years. Now, very little of it was what you'd call hand-to-hand -hand work, but we did some of it. And I know some, some defensive moves, but their entire martial arts built around the idea of learning how to grapple. Right. How, right. I mean, that. And even just using sort of posture and body language and positioning to, uh, to deescalate really. Like if you are demonstrating proper fighting form, whatever method you're using, people tend to perceive that. Like they recognize like, oh shit, this guy can handle, you know, can make a move. <laughs> you know, I'm going to yeah. stop what I'm doing. That's right. He knows what he's doing. Now this yeah. is leaving aside entirely ideas about negotiation. And as you said, de-escalation that don't involve using any weaponry or, or physical force at all, mm. which seems to me to be the first choice in, in almost every scenario. Yes. Now, if somebody has a drawn weapon, uh, and I know it gets dicey when we're talking about the, the teenager who was shot by the police who was uh, using a knife and apparently was about to stab another teenager. I understand that these things require, as we were saying before, split second decisions. Yes. Okay. But so let's say the police are not trained in, in de-escalation and negotiation because they don't want to do that. Okay. Then it seems to me two things follow from that. Number one, don't put them in positions where that's what they're supposed to do. Right. Increase what we were saying last week, uh, uh, the use of mental health workers and social workers in these situations. And second, eliminate them from, from positions where they don't, they don't need to be using weapons at all. Traffic stops, for example. Yeah. I mean, does it matter if somebody has five or six or 10 warrants out for failure to appear in court or pay fines or whatever the hell it is? Who cares? If you pull them over and you run the plate, you see that, you, you, you phone it in. Right. And it then somebody's at their with. yeah, somebody's at their apartment or their house waiting for them when they arrive. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh anyway, I just wanted to I just wanted to talk about the the lack of, of adequate police training and, and how deplorable it is. Mm. And I let me give you one statistic sure. that I learned. In the state of California, to be a certified police officer requires six hundred and sixty-five hours of training. Wow. I'm surprised it's that much, as low as that is. That's incredibly low. Yeah. To be a barber in California, a certified barber requires 1,500 hours. <laughs> right. So more than double. <laughs> so let's assume that you're <laughs> that the state of California considers scissors and razors to be lethal weapons. Right. And you want to make sure barbers can use them. Got to keep them holstered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. We know that they're going to pull them out. Let's make sure they can use them. I, I think maybe we need to give police officers a little more training. Yeah. Yeah. To say the least. Yeah. And yeah, it is astonishing. The low level of training and the quality of the training and what the training entails. I mean, I'm not, not professing to be an expert on all those topics, but I know enough about them to know that they're, that they're weak across the board in terms of content, duration, everything. 
even the physical fitness standards of course you know this the stereotype of the fat cop eating donuts or whatever like all of that um plays into some of the things we were talking about i think but even then beyond that you know we don't have to revisit this for too long since we talked about it so much last time but uh the, I saw a clip, well, two, two clips I'll mention briefly this week that I saw. One was a situation where uh, seemingly a mentally ill and or woman with a substance abuse problem was in a store, probably Walmart, waiting in line and ha- having some sort of breakdown, panic attack, perhaps, whatever. Uh, clearly upset and in distress and people around her were you know becoming uncomfortable weren't sure how to act and obviously somebody was filming and shortly afterwards a woman from behind the counter an employee store employee comes around the counter and just calmly approaches the woman uh has like open body language and ultimately within you know 10 15 seconds just gives her a hug like a sustained hug and she calms down over the period of the next 30 seconds or whatever. So, you know, obviously this has bearing on the things we were talking about regarding like replacing cops with social workers. You know, yeah. if a store employee, Walmart employee with no training or education on this type of approach can perceive uh, that, first of all, this woman is not a threat, you know, a violent threat. And second, that she can you know, meaningfully de-escalate the situation through compassion, you know, uh, surely, surely we can employ agents of the state who can do the same. Right. So just wanted to offer that as an anecdote and example. Oh, my cat's attacking the computer. Um, Hello, Clouseau. Hello, Clouseau. Um, (laughs) Yes, it's, it's not, (laughs) it, it would be appalling if we had to train people to be compassionate, as opposed to just calling upon our human resources, our resources as human beings, interacting with someone who's clearly struggling. Of course, I thought you were gonna go to the example of the 73 year old woman who was uh, wrestled to the ground, had her shoulder dislocated uh, because she failed to pay a $13.88 bill at Walmart or wherever the hell it was. Yes, that was the (laughs) second one I was gonna mention. I saw that too. This is not a person who in any way can be a threat to, to any police officer. No. If she pulled a machete <laughs> out of her bag, that would, still wouldn't be a threat. No, she wouldn't have been able to wield it or even known no. who to wield it against. She had dementia also. That's why dementia. she didn't pay. Yeah. Of course, she'd have to use her left hand because her right shoulder had now been dislocated. <laughs> so even less effective machete wielding. Exactly. And beyond the obvious violence, misapplication of violence in that case, um, I also saw uh, just today, and I don't know if you saw this, but some footage was released from like a security camera of the police station after that incident. And the officers who had assaulted the woman in that way were showing their body cam footage to other officers in the station and like laughing and making all this commentary you know, about how they had dealt with this woman. Meanwhile, at the same, and you can hear them. So there's multiple uh, angles of security footage. So you see the cops out front talking, you know, basically like sort of locker room talk almost, you know, to use that Trumpian phrase. And uh, 
they're they're laughing it up and at the same time you can see an angle into the woman in the cell with the dislocated shoulder uh and and the the their laughter is audible in her cell so it's just i mean it's it's just unbelievably sadistic and fucked up and that's the culture you know not the training in my view at that point it's the it's just this insane you know we would connect it i think with the toxic masculinity that that people talk about um, this idea because these this male cop, somewhat burly male cop, is like bragging about taking down this tiny little seventy three year old woman. It's just fucking pathetic. Yeah, you know? it's appalling. Yeah. Well, we don't have to rehash our entire yeah. encounter, but if, it could be every week <laughs> with the way the cops re, are. If viewers and listeners want to rehash, go back to encounter four. Yes. Where we talk about policing. Uh, I had one more. It's not really a housekeeping item, Mm. but it is something I wanted to bring up because, again, in my uh, my slide into senescence, (laughs) I forgot to mention it uh, last. I think it was last encounter. Sure. Or maybe it was encounter three. You and I had talked about uh, what I was distinguishing differentiating between an emergency and a crisis and i said the crisis was climate the climate change and the emergency was uh nuclear weapons right there's another there's another crisis uh that's kind of underground or maybe a better metaphor is off the radar which it has become prominent now and shows us how quickly a crisis can morph into an emergency. And that's the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, And the future pandemic that we know is coming. Absolutely. And we know it's going, yeah, what could be soon. (laughs) Much sooner, I think, than the hundred years that transpired between Spanish flu and this. That's right. But the issue that's become salient for me is not so much what nature will produce. We know nature is going to produce a more virulent virus than what we've seen with COVID. And we fucked up the COVID response so badly that had this been a more serious disease, we, the nation would have been in deep trouble. Yes. Not that it isn't already. Uh, So we know it's coming. We know nature is going to produce this. And the question is how quickly or how far off mm. is it like the Spanish flu? It's going to be every hundred years. We have a pandemic like this. No, there isn't any way that's going to happen. No, but what, what is more salient for me now is the lab manufacturing of these viruses. So people are looking, people, researchers are looking at COVID and they're saying, huh, only about one or 2% of the population that get infected die from this. Wow, what would happen if the rate were 10 times that? Mm. Or what would happen if the rate were 30 times that? And so they're in labs weaponizing these viruses to try to figure out what to do to combat them. Well, this brings us back to the issue of nuclear weapons. We're talking about human judgment, human frailty, human failure here. 
right? We're, we're one of these escapes from a lab. <laughs> Leaving aside the possibility that somebody wants to launch one of these. So we have a Ted Kaczynski Unabomber scenario where, some, where somebody hates civilization and says, I'm just going to take us back to the Stone Age and launches one of these things from a lab. Mm. There, there is a strain of a virus. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get the name and I probably won't get the designation right. I think it's H5N1 which had a very small outbreak somewhere, very, very small, contained immediately. But it has a lethality of something like 30 to 50%. So imagine you have a virus like COVID that's killing half the people who get it. I mean, just imagine what that would be like. Utterly devastating. And especially if it's then weaponized, like you, like you were suggesting. Well, yeah, let's say it's worth <laughs> let's say some lunatic launches this out of a lab and it's it's higher than 50 percent but if you knew that half the people who got it were going to die i can tell you a couple of things you're not going to do you're not going to go to work right. you're going you're going to you're going to hoard as much as you can of whatever the things are that you need and now the problem isn't that walgreens runs out of your medication for allergies or that the grocery store runs out of news, uh, newspaper, toilet paper, or paper towels. It's that the whole supply chain of everything is completely fucked. Yes. Because nobody's going to work. And then what happens in power stations? What happens to the power grid when nobody wants to go to work at the power station? So what do they say? They say, we'll pay you a million dollars a day if you go into work. And 70% person, chance you die. <laughs> yeah, and there's a there's a 50 to 70% chance you're going to die. And you're going to say no. Now the power grid's down. What <laughs> what is what happens civilization ends. Yes. We, you know, this and we're talking about a matter of weeks. Yeah, it, what I think what you're what really resonates with this suggestion for me is the fragility of of complex society. Yeah. Right? Because and there are, there are some people uh, who have written about this and I find the argument compelling. It's like when you develop a highly complex and sophisticated society that is interdependent, you know, you mentioned the supply chain and things like this, it doesn't take much to sort of knock the Jenga tower over, you know, at which point the whole thing comes, comes careening to a halt. And, uh, you know, yeah, the, the, also the, the, have you heard about the lab leak hypothesis with COVID? There are some people who think yeah. that it was not, you know, organic in its origins or that, you know, well, coronavirus is organic, but that they right. were working on it at, I think the Wuhan Institute of Virology, right. which right. is a real thing, right? you know, and that it escaped the lab that way. I'm not entirely convinced only because I haven't seen like, absolutely you know concrete evidence but it's absolutely possible that that yeah. happened you yeah, know it's, it, yeah it's it's possible um, it, the two the two options strike me as as unfortunate one is the the the, the virus escapes from a lab somehow it's carried out some way which we don't know and that's the scary part we don't know how that happened the other one is you you 
have a nice bed of rice and you slap a bat on it and say, oh, here, here's lunch. But both of these, these are <laughs> for me, not, not good options, but you're right. Uh, there was a, an outbreak, the last outbreak of smallpox mm -hmm. occurred in Great Britain where uh, two people got infected. Uh, there was a, mis a, a mistake in the lab. They, were, they had it in the lab, it got out. Two people were infected, one died, one lived. But this was what they classify as like a grade four research lab, the, the highest security. Mm. If, if that can happen in the highest security labs, then imagine what's going on in some of these other labs that are also working on these viruses and bacteria. Right. It, and it is, it's stunning, as you said, how, how precarious our civilization is. Yes. And if you, if you sort of work backwards from that, it's like if there are significant disruptions, ultimately, you know, what does it, what does it take if, you know, if, uh, if a country or a community is suddenly without food for three days or something, you're going to see absolute, you know, violence and chaos and rioting and looting of unprecedented proportions. So we have this just in time uh, supply chain, especially for food products, that if it gets meaningfully disrupted, then, you know, potentially we could see at least, at least localized versions of that, if not if not major ones. I mean, this is, this is the argument also, uh, one of the arguments that I find most compelling for the mechanism by which climate change renders us extinct, essentially, which is famine, right, through, yeah. through these types of disruptions, abrupt disruptions, yeah. that, that may only be temporary, but it only takes a few weeks without food and water to, or access to medications, all types of things to completely devastate a complex society uh, like this. So, yeah, and, and, and assuming, you know, to link it back to the nuclear weapons thing and everything else we were talking about, like that depended on even more so on judgment and choice, I think. Although you mentioned the, the accident with like the person that dropped the wrench or whatever, I think accidental nuclear missile launch is less likely than accidental leaking of a biological, you know, agent from a lab, right? Where yeah. so many small mistakes could occur that could, that could lead to the, such an outbreak. I think for me, the hope is that something like the coronavirus will be enough of a shock internationally that there will, there will be some kind of movement toward global uh, or international coordination. Mm. Uh, because I think, I cannot imagine that people aren't thinking the way we're thinking, which is that we are very close. Had this been more lethal, we were, would have been in serious, serious trouble because it's underscored the problems we've had, not just with the Trump administration and their stupidity, <laughs> which is bottomless. But with what was going on, uh, trying to get masks and ventilators into places, uh, we, we, we're just at 
uh, in a horrible shape. And the hope is that that something as non-lethal, I'm not, I, I'm not trying to make light of it because 600,000 people have died in this country. Right. But we understand the magnitude uh, of, of something much more virulent. So uh, my hope is that people will learn from these mistakes just the way uh, we have been without a nuclear uh, weapon exchange or nu nuclear bomb going off for 70 years. Right. And I don't think it's just dumb luck. <laughs> luck plays a part, but it's also that we've learned, we're learning lessons as we go. Oh my God, we can't have these radar glitches. We can't have the, the fate <laughs> of the world resting on some glitch in the computer. We've got to do something about that. And I think, so, I think steps are being taken and I'm heartened that we have not had uh, a nuclear exchange, weapon exchange, but yes. by any, in any country, I mean, no country has done it. But yet, <laughs> yet but, but 70 years is, is yeah, still pretty it's... good because we understand human, human error and misjudgment. Right. This leaves aside how much easier I think it might be. Oh, maybe, maybe I, I shouldn't say that because I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, wait, it's called the bullshit artists. Fuck you. Right. We I don't have to know. I don't have to know what I'm talking about. It's better but, if we don't know. <laughs> but I was going to say, it seems to me that launching a nuclear weapon requires more uh, approval and coordination than somebody in 10 years time being able to weaponize a virus. Yes. I don't I, I don't know this area, but I can imagine that there are things available on, on the computer now that you can figure out and then monkey around within your lab. Right. I, I'm just so, so maybe that's wrong, but I, I there, there are. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is like in the same way that there's the fear of, you know, dirty bombs and, and briefcase nuclear bombs, you know, in the hands of independent non-state actors. Um, so too, now there uh, there's the rise of something which I've never pronounced aloud. So I don't know if this is how it's actually pronounced. I think it is the, it's an acronym, I think. CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R. Yeah. 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 So you know about this. It's yeah. something, some, some kind of kit or whatever that enables you to genetically modify and otherwise monkey around with, as you said, material like this. And that technology is becoming more widespread. It's almost like a 3D printer for, bioweapons is yeah. kind of where I see it headed. And, uh, and yeah, and now having had this sort of natural experiment that has revealed to everyone the vulnerabilities globally to and susceptibilities to uh, something like this, I, I have to think it's gonna be utilized, biologic weapons will be utilized again, or I mean, you know, in a strategic manner by, by states and others to produce certain outcomes. I mean, there are some who would go so far as to say that, include that, you know, Trump basically is intimating this or has intimated this, that coronavirus, the China flu or whatever, Kung flu, whatever racist bullshit he calls it, you know, um, was a bio, it was a deliberate attack, you know, by China. Um, I don't think that's the case, but it does not, it's not a stretch to imagine that it, it could have been or that something like that could come down the road. But then the flip side, right, is that it's not really controllable. Even if you think you can control an infectious disease, I, I think it's probably 
not true <laughs> that you could. But also, you know, maybe there's a, a little bit of hope buried in there with the way in which this pandemic has shown all societies around the world to be mutually susceptible, such that perhaps, like you were suggesting, we could come together and say, look, let's not go through this again. Let's make sure this doesn't happen. But we kind of have been talking about it from the top level, I think, without without being explicit or necessarily meaning to. There's also the, the, the bottom up side of things where like in the United States, for example, a significant part of why our death toll is so high is because tens of millions of people in this country either don't understand or don't believe in the germ theory of disease, right? Germ, germs are beyond their comprehension. So to them, it, it, it's not self-evident that, the, that mask wearing will you know, provide protection from infection. To, to anyone you know, with a double digit IQ, that should be clear. Right. So in other words, we need we need improved practices at the high end among elites and others who might be managing these types of things. And then also, what do we say? Improved education among the population so that things like the wearing a mask are not capable of being politicized in the way that they were. The depth of ignorance begins where you just were with people who don't understand and therefore don't accept the germ theory of disease. But then there are other levels, and I don't know if these are higher or lower, (laughs) of people who do accept the germ theory of disease, but then will say such stupid things as some of the Republicans have said. Well, if you wear a mask, then those germs get caught in my mask. And if I have it on, I will be breathing them in. Right, and then I'm more likely to get sick. Um, Yes, so I'm more likely to get sick with a mask. Uh, Then there are the uh, people who believe that because they are protected by the blood of Jesus, uh, there can be germs, but they won't affect me. Because I'm (laughs) I'm washed in the blood of the lamb. but this is worldwide. This is the thing that's astounding to me, is that we we see this in Brazil with Bolsonaro. We see it with Modi in India. We see it in the UK with Boris Johnson, who himself had coronavirus. Just like Trump. They, they, I don't understand if if they actually think the things they say or if they're just cynical. And say these things because they know that the the dumb base that supports them will want to hear this kind of thing and will, will believe it. Mm. Yeah, it, is it? I think it's both. And it, you know, who knows? With the it can be. I think certainly it's been cynically manipulated. You know, obviously by Trump and the Republicans, and probably by Bolsonaro and others, Modi. But I. It's like, I don't really see the, what's the goal? It's almost the only goal is sort of to signal in-group membership that I see, you know? It's like, we're, we're part of the club that thinks this is bullshit and fuck everybody 
who tries to say otherwise, you know, that that's almost the only real effect that I can see in terms of political manipulation by these leaders. Do you see any, you know what I mean? Like, well, they, I'm going to assume that it's a cynical response and they are knowledgeable enough to know that the coronavirus is not going to kill massive amounts of people. It's going mm. to kill hundreds of thousands of people. And when you total it up, that will be worldwide millions of people. But the flu kills a million people a year. And so they make the argument, well, this is no, no different than the flu, no more lethal than the flu. Well, it is, but it's not in order, orders of magnitude. So they can get away with saying, stay free, don't wear a mask, go where you want, do what you want, don't quarantine, don't, don't stay in your homes, go out and party, it's fine. And they can get away with it because millions and millions of people are not dying. Right. So I, again, I think, I think we were lucky. And these right-wingers, these authoritarians, this can bring us to our topic about authority. Yeah. Uh, got lucky, got lucky with this pandemic. And, but, <laughs> but for people who are sensible and can see where this is leading and how badly we responded to this pandemic, with the exception of some countries, most of them in Asia. Right. Uh, I don't know where I was headed with that. We just, <laughs> we just got lucky. Yeah, we, we dodged a bullet, right? We took a bullet in reality, but we dodged well, a cannonball. Yeah, it was a flesh, it was a flesh wound, right? right. We, got, we got grazed. It hurt. <laughs> uh, people died. I don't want to make light of that. I'm not trying no. to make light of that. But, but from the perception of leaders like Trump, it's a flesh wound, as you yeah, say. It, yeah, in the aggregate. Yeah. You know, we, we faced a pandemic that made people sick, took lives, but wasn't devastating. Civilization moves on. Mm -hmm. Yes, we were without toilet paper for a while and wasn't that inconvenient. But as I said, the supply chain didn't break down. The power grid didn't go down. You know, water mm -hmm. systems didn't fail. That could be coming. Right, right. And, and the, there's so many overlapping things also. It's like, that was the thing. That's the thing also, the, the fragility and the vulnerability that was revealed by, by COVID, but also... Uh, the sort of the way in which COVID was a force multiplier for every other problem. It accelerated yeah. so many trends, made so many things that were already that were already bad worse. You know, and we can't just flip a switch and sort of reverse those effects. They're too, uh, you know, bound up. They're too intrinsically sort of bound up at this point. And as those converging crises, catastrophes, whatever, uh, continue, then yeah, we're gonna see, like imagine, I mean, we already saw it, like Texas was without power from that storm for several days, right? Large portions of Texas, uh, I don't know how, a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago, those track of time at this point, uh, you know, their power grid did go down <laughs> and the pandemic was happening. And, you know, God knows if, if, if one or two other major crises had hit at the same time, we could have seen 
you know, mass deaths. Yeah. And those, those events and instances will be increasing, but like, but we kind of raise something that I find, you know, psychologically, philosophically intriguing, interesting, whatever, which is the, the linkages, if any, between capacities for empathy, uh, obedience to, or appreciation and support for of and for authority and the perception of sort of uh, distant or disembodied threats. So if, if, if I'm linking these together, it's sort of like, why are there, the question might become, what is it about certain groups of people that either prevents them or dissuades them from perceiving and recognizing these types of threats as real, whether it's climate change denialists, pandemic downplayers, uh, systemic vi- police violence against Black people, you know, uh, deniers, things like this, where where they truly fail to perceive these, I think, to, in some significant extent. Now, some are just full of shit; they're lying, and they actually support these types of problems like police violence but there's got to be some significant group of people for whom it just goes whizzing right by right over their heads or whatever you know and that that disturbs me (laughs) to say the least yeah you know because it's like i feel like i'm out here it's like i'm out here in the world looking around at all this shit that's invisible to so many do you follow do you have any get what I'm saying or have any thoughts on anything like that? Uh, I do. Let's take examples of, of police killings of unarmed black males. I mentioned in one of the previous encounters that I don't have any statistics. So I'm, I'm not clear on how many unarmed black males are killed by police every year. I don't know how many unarmed white males are killed by police, how many unarmed Hispanics, brown males or Asians or Native Americans are killed by police. I just don't know. So I don't know if there is a a pandemic of murder going on, but I think Every instance of, of one of these killings gives people an opportunity to act in one of two ways. They may say something like, this isn't an epidemic. This is going on. It's just been sensationalized by the media. Yes, it's true that, that we can see from the body cams or the bystanders videos that murder is occurring or these killings are occurring, but they don't happen that often. That seems untrue, Um, but we don't know how many other ethnic groups or racial groups are involved in these kinds of shootings. Those those aren't sensationalized. Hmm. On the other hand, I think people can react in a different way, which is to say, it isn't so much that this is an epidemic of murder 
which it might be. Again, I don't have the statistics, so I don't know. But it points out something that is an ongoing issue. It is simply an example of the ongoing racism in this society. And it points to, to bigger issues. We talked about police training. And last time we talked about this, we talked about, I emphasized the idea about screening, doing, doing extensive psychological testing uh, before people are admitted to the police academy or the military we should right. be doing. Um, but it could just be that this is an indication of something beyond Black Lives Matter. It's into something of, about systemic racism. That why is this happening? Why do we think this could be an epidemic? Even if we don't know that it is an epidemic, because we can see the prejudice against minorities in this country. It's completely believable because we see it not just in terms of police murdering people, but in banks denying black entrepreneurs loans, of people being denied mortgages for houses in certain areas of town, uh, people being followed in Walmart. Right. I mean, it happened or being pulled over because you're driving a bad looking car in a rich neighborhood. There are, there are a host of these examples. And I think that that's what's happening here. They all simply point out what we know is deep and systemic and that as we talked last week, last week, last encounter needs to be rooted out. Yes. Yes. I think, I think I agree. And I guess I'm trying to dig, I'm thinking like, what are some of the fundamental aspects of either human nature or whatever other components of the human experience that make that the case? So is it something, uh, is there, are there, you know, substantive differences in pattern recognition among different populations or, or, you know, one thing that I might suggest is a cognitive uh, deficit in the form of like systems level thinking, you know, there's a, there's a philosopher um, who writes on climate change named Timothy Morton. Uh, and he has this, he proposed this notion of a hyper object where uh, I forget, you know, he has a lengthy, wrote a whole book about it, you know, multiple books, but the idea is like something that is so diffuse over time and space and abstract, et cetera, et cetera, such that it's, it's a challenge to wrap your head around and, and you have to spend a significant amount of time and effort studying or learning a lot of material in order to sort of build or construct this concept because it's so big. So it's not something that you can just intuitively perceive. Whereas like so, some of what you were describing, I think is, is more easily perceptible, although still challenging. You know, if you, if you have black friends and you, and you literally witness them experiencing discrimination, you know, well, that's something that you're going to eventually, hopefully acknowledge a pattern and say, here's a real systemic problem. That could be some evidence that helps lead you to that conclusion. But something like climate change or these more abstract issues, including, I guess, the germ theory of disease, require evidently a certain 
um, certain capacity, cognitive capacity that is lacking. And, and to be clear, I'm thinking here, not in the sense of like innate, innate abilities, like, oh, people are too dumb, but rather people have not um, had the opportunity and the, especially the educational opportunities, as I think you have written about in, in something in this vein, to undergo an education that would elevate their cognitive abilities developmentally so that they're able to perceive these phenomena that are systemic and diffuse and abstract in this way. So, uh, you know, I, I'm just now thinking like Ken Wilbur has this example in one, at least one of his books there where he talks about like, uh, if you have, a, if you have a, a copy of Hamlet by Shakespeare, right? That object is going to perceive, be perceived entirely differently by a human versus a dog, right? To a dog, it's a chew toy. To a human, there's a whole world of content within that object that's inaccessible to the dog. Now, I'm not quite saying that, you know, <laughs> climate change deniers are dogs. I think that would be an insult to dogs. And I don't even like dogs. But of dogs. <laughs> I know you do. I hear them barking <laughs> every time we chat. But um, but so you, you see what I'm getting at. So for me, it's like these things are truly invisible to some enormous chunk of the population. And therefore, to communicate about these topics, you have to use indirect and what we might call skillful means. This is something that I've thought about a lot when I was working with Extinction Rebellion. You know, how, how can we communicate? Well, civil disobedience was a form of communication, disruption, right? Putting your body on the line, willing to get arrested by blocking traffic. To some people, they might say, well, what the fuck's the connection between that and climate change? Well, part of it is to give people's attention, right? Part of it is to initiate a conversation that has not been able to be initiated by any other means. So whatever, these are just some thoughts that are swirling around in my head. Do you, do you agree with what I'm saying regarding like systems level thinking? Do you think that's a problem or am I being too sort of too academic or too elitist about it? You're definitely being elitist. Well, yeah, okay. I but embrace then, that. But, but then you are. Yeah. So there we are. <laughs> One must climb mountains, right? What does Nietzsche <laughs> say? You look, you, look, you look up because you're low. I look down because I'm elevated. <laughs> so. That's exactly right. I'm always looking up. and looking up at you right now, Rory. Yes. Uh, well, we're generalizing here, and I don't think that's such a bad thing on this topic. Hmm. Let's assume for a minute that you're correct, that people have the cognitive capacity to be able to do systems level thinking, but they're not educated to do it. They're not schooled. Right, they this have the potential at least. They have the potential, right. But this doesn't require, or maybe in this, in this day and age, it does require that if you want to learn, if you want to be, forced to think systematically or at a systems level, you have to go to a place that operates at that level. So now we're talking about the requirement for people to go to college, university. 
or to change secondary schools, perhaps. Well, yeah, that's where I was headed. Yeah. There isn't any way that you can look across the spectrum of public education in the country we know, the United States, and say that anything like systems level thinking is going on. And to continue with our generalization, it appears that what is going on is simply a method for ordering people. We wanna put them in certain boxes. Nobody denies that if you do well on a certain standardized test, that that success on the test can translate in some way into continuing to do the same kind of testing at higher and different levels. Right. Right. So <laughs> we start in elementary school by offering students standardized tests, which we then continue into secondary school, which then in many ways inform, continue into university and college level. Right. Okay. At some point you want to say, yes, but that's the, the college and university levels where we get the systems thinking. Do we? <laughs> right. You know, I, I don't see, I don't see the college and university system itself operating systematically. No. We have discrete departments reflecting discrete disciplines that look at isolated problems without an attempt really to try to integrate them. Okay, that's at the highest level. And of course, it doesn't get any better at the level you are, at the doctoral level. No. Right. You just happen to have carved out a topic that's going to that's going to require a lot of integration of, of different perspectives. Yes. And I am in, a, in an interdisciplinary program. I mean, in an that's disciplinary part program. of what attracted me, you know, to this program, yeah. to its credit. Yeah. When I was your age, I was looking for those kinds of programs and they existed. I think we talked about some of them and maybe the first encounter mm -hmm. where I was in and out of, of various programs because they either didn't come as advertised or took, took a turn somewhere that was unsettling and unsatisfying to me. But that was 35 years ago. And things haven't changed appreciably because you found a program. How many programs are, are like the philosophy and education program at Teachers College at Columbia? None. None. 35 <laughs> years. Where are we? We're, yeah. We continue to want to get finer and finer problems and smaller and smaller morsels and look at them uh, in deeper and deeper ways. Okay, I can see the value of that as an exercise, but I don't see the value of that of coming to appreciate, understand society and the people who, who occupy it, which is, brings us back to this idea about how do we how do we get people to think systematically how do we get systems level thinking yes you have to want to do it you have to you have to say this is what we're going to do and schools don't do that it because it's expensive and it's difficult and teachers aren't prepared they don't know how to do it they don't trust students far better to simply order them so now maybe we don't sit students in classrooms at solitary desks no, no, we've advanced to having tables where we, they work in groups and interact. 
interact on what? It seems to me they're doing the same kind of lessons in groups that they were doing sitting at their isolated desks. It's standardized tests. It's the same kind of stuff we've been seeing for generation after generation. Yes. So I no wonder that, we don't make any progress. <laughs> I know. I think that's right. And I think, I mean, I have a lot of, so many thoughts that are bubbling up as you were talking, like. You know, um, stick the ladle in, pull out some of them. <laughs> yeah. It's the soup kitchen. <laughs> we're, uh, we're, well, okay. There's two main threads that I'm thinking of. Like on the one hand, as you say, the testing regime starts early and that sets a path uh, a path dependency, which I, I talked about at some point before, that that continues on through all of elementary and secondary education, and now I think has has ex- continued on into uh, college and even the graduate level, right? Where uh, the sort of jumping through the hoops is what matters, you know, uh, and and learning is secondary to that education is almost incidental actual education is almost incidental but then at the same time and maybe relatedly what we have to ask you know why is that the case and i think certainly for primary and secondary schooling there's we we have to maybe disentangle the idea of education and the types of approaches, pedagogical, instructional, et cetera, that we would want to see in education from the sort of sociological function of schooling, right? So there's this book that was written in like the 70s called Schooling in Capitalist America. I don't know. Are are you familiar with this book? So it's just, I think it's a very simple and completely convincing argument and premise the authors articulate what they call the correspondence principle, where they say, look at the structure of the classroom, look at the behaviors that are um, imposed and the relationships that are created in the classroom. You have, first of all, a hierarchical relationship between the authority figure of the teacher and the student that cannot be you know, broached, right? Like that's, that's inherent to the system. And you have students performing uh, or completing certain kinds of work at the more or less arbitrary discretion of the teacher in return for a reward, which is the grade, right? All of this is analogous, almost perfectly analogous to the workplace that the school setting and classroom setting is preparing these students for, right? So to the extent to which the student is obedient, pleases the teacher, conforms to the teacher's expectations, uh, he or she will receive the reward that he or she is seeking and will be happy and successful. In the same way, those students who have been trained in this fashion will go on to a workplace where they seek to satisfy their boss without question in return for the highest wage that they can receive, something like this. Um, So that I would argue, and I think you would probably argue, although we might have some minor disagreements uh, within those 
within our broader agreement that that setting and relationship is inimical to learning and education. Authentic learning and education. Like the, I, like for example, we could even just say learning how to learn, becoming lifelong learners. Because in the same way that, you know, accumulating wealth is as an end in itself is empty and meaningless. Nobody who, nobody who learns or crams, right? only to pass an exam and receive a high score is going to value learning for its own sake intrinsically, I think. Mm. So, so there, so that's, that's what I mean in the sense of like, we have this sociological imperative or incentive for the government, the state apparatus to produce workers, to feed the economy, human capital stock, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so of course they create a school system that is a microcosm of the macrocosm and that uh, is going to perpetuate the, the system of social arrangements and economic forces that are in place. And, and to imagine otherwise would be to imagine that the state or the capitalist economy would willingly undo itself. Right. Yeah. You know, they're not going to educate yeah. little Socrateses. Yeah. I, so. I don't think you have to imagine how the school system began. Mm. Because history shows us how it began. It is not an accident that widespread public education took hold in the United States as more and more workers were moving into factories and off of farms. In order to get them to work efficiently, in order to get them to the factory, they had to have a system that they were accustomed to. And so it's not by accident that classes were changed by the, the ring of a bell, that right. lunch hour was announced with a bell, that school begins with a bell, that school ends with a bell because this is the way that factories work. When is your lunch hour? When the bell rings. When do you start work? When the bell rings. So that you're, you're exactly right. What we did was we simply duplicated the kind of scheduling they, that workers would find in the factory in the school system. Now, did they care what was, what was learned? You know, the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Okay, yes, I can imagine that in the old days, that's what you, that's what you learned. Uh, and we continue to learn, lots of students continue to learn the three R's, but we know of examples of students who graduate from secondary school and God knows probably from college who- ASU at least. <laughs> who don't, oh, that's terrible. Who don't read well I can't imagine there's some who don't read at all, but that might be the case. There are other reasons why people are going to college. Anyway, back to your, your sociological example. Yes, you, you want, you, as I said, it's about ordering people. Mm. Not just ordering them around, but that's what administrators and teachers often do. Do this, do that, do it when I tell you, stop when I tell you. But also ordering them in the sense of, of uh, an informal kind of tracking 
Mm. And maybe it's not even that informal. I and mean, there are systems we know in Europe where students are tracked early on to go into apprenticeships uh, and aiming for the workplace as opposed to going on to university. In this country, we have pretended that we don't do that. But we know that we know that we do because we have required, sometimes required AP courses. The what's it called? The not the college track. Is it called the college track? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not familiar with that, but I'm sure it exists. So you it's happening uh, in the some sort of sub rosa fashion. Right. Oh, yes, everybody can go to college, but let's face it, little Jimmy's probably not going to go to college. So we'll put him in some different kinds of classes. Yeah, I think there is, class. yeah, there, there, there's a pecking order. There are honors classes, there are regular classes. Uh, and I know of one example of a student, very good student who refused to ever take an honors class. Hmm. Uh, he's now finished his PhD at Stanford and works uh, in a lab in Palo Alto or San Francisco somewhere, but he just refused because he said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be a part of this. This is, this is stupid. Good for him. Yeah, so, okay, so we know there are honors and regular classes. So there is some kind of ordering there, but I think it's all about ordering. And why do we use standardized tests? Because they're easy. As I mentioned prior encounter, one aspect that's deplorable is that the teachers never get the students individual results. They may get their score, but that's it. They don't know what questions they got right, what questions they got wrong, or why they got them right or wrong. Now, that assumes that teachers care, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that they do. But we know, you and I know plenty of teachers who aren't that sharp, aren't that good, aren't that interested, yeah, who just don't care. It's a paycheck. They're babysitting or whatever. They yeah. You know. So it's it's easy. So it's easy to give standardized tests. It's easy to teach to, to the test when you have a booklet telling you what to teach and when. That is not education. I don't even know that that's learning. <laughs> you know, but it but as you said, it doesn't stop with with the 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 state exam at the end of your secondary school life. It goes on in universities and you do it. It's done because of management. I think I told you, I've told you this story. When I, my first day at ASU, after I had been hired, one of the senior faculty stopped me in the mailroom and said, oh, what are you teaching this semester? And one of the courses I was teaching was a course called political ideologies, which at the time, I think I had 175 students. They, I don't know that I ever had under 120, but 175 was not an outrageous amount of students at an introductory course at a large public university. I said, I'm teaching political ideologies. And he said, uh, well, you're not giving essay exams in there, are you? Insinuating that you would only teach a course of that size with multiple choice. Right. I said, no, I'm giving essays. And he scoffed. (laughs) and mocked me and said, well, you're never gonna get tenure teaching like that. And my answer, this is my first day. I'm a brand new professor. Have I told you the story? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good and my, one. <laughs> well, so you know the answer was. Yeah, but the but, audience doesn't. Yeah, they don't have to hear. Oh, come on. <laughs> so my answer was, I didn't come here to get tenure. 
I came here to teach the best I can. And if my work isn't good enough, I won't get tenure and I'll be fired. That's okay. But the incentive is you offer a certain kind of test that's easy to score because you're not really paying attention to the classroom. You're paying attention to your research. The classroom will take care of itself. So you just teach multiple choice. You, you go in and you lecture. Here's the information. You student learn the information. Give it back to me on, a, on the multiple choice test. And that then we're both done. Right. Students are accustomed to it because that's what they've been doing in secondary school. That's what I was just going to say. They've been well trained for uh, to you know to take for that's the classroom right. to take care of itself, like you say. You know? Yeah, they're not well educated. They're well trained. Right now, students who have taken all those honors classes uh, have been preparing, <laughs> by and large, for the AP test, which is another standardized test. Right, has short so, essay sections, but uh, as short right. essay sessions. So they come into classes. What are they expecting? They're expecting tests that are basically multiple choice with short essay sessions sections. And that's what they get. And they've been schooled into how to do well. Yes. How to do well on those tests. And they do do well on those tests. And and why is that important? Well, it's important because the reward, as you said, Rory, is the grade. And moreover, the reward is to do well on the other standardized tests that are coming down the road. The uh, MCAT, the standardized test for medical school, the LSAT, the standardized test for law school, the GRE, the standardized test for arts and sciences, standardized test after standardized test. That's what students are urged to be good at. That's what they're schooled in. That's what that is, is repeated. And that's what they learn. Yes. I, I have one more story for you. Yeah. When I was uh, at Oxford, I'm, I had uh, an encounter with, I've, I've, I've told you this, I've told you this story before. Um, because I was a research student, I had no required classes. There was no class in my entire year, the, my three years at Oxford that I, ever, I had to take. But I would get the printout, uh, was it a printout or maybe it was posted in the schools, old school at Oxford, I don't remember. But regardless, there was be a schedule of lectures and classes offered. And so I would go uh, sit in on Alan Ryan's class. Alan Ryan was a political theorist at Oxford, very, very well renowned. And I would sit in his lectures. There was a guy who had just come and my, my advisor, it told me that he was one of the smartest people he knew. This guy spoke eight languages. His name was Norman Stone. He was a professor of modern history. I said, oh, that guy sounds interesting. So I would sit in on his lectures. Well, after about three weeks, there were like four people in the audience at his lectures. Students just weren't coming. He was a tremendous lecturer. And that's, that's, that's the, the Oxford system for more than just a tutorial where it's one-on-one or two-on-one with your mentor you go to lectures and they're often public lectures. So I would go to his lectures and eventually Norman Stone said to me after about the fifth or sixth week when I was one of the three people in the room and he began to recognize my face. He said, let's go to the pub and get a drink. I said, fine. So off we went, the two of us. And he said, who are you? What do you do? What are you studying? I said, I'm doing political theory. Oh God, what a waste of time. Well, maybe, but uh, that's what I'm interested in. Who are you working with? What, what's your topic? And then he said to me, are you a Rhodes Scholar? Because lots of Americans who go to Oxford are Rhodes Scholars. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm 
just a research student. He said, oh, God, thank, oh, thank the Lord that you're not a Rhodes Scholar. I said, well, why do you say that? He said, because Rhodes Scholars are students who have come having done well, having jumped through all the hoops. He said, I'll tell you the one thing they can't do. Put them in, the, in a room alone and give them a question and say, think about this and then leave them alone. And he was in one encapsulated conversation. He was saying, here's the problem with your form of education. It's just one standardized test after another, after another, after another. And what's left out of the whole equation is creative or original or critical thinking. Yes. That's, I think that's an amazing anecdote. And I, it calls to mind for me two things. First of all, a quote from Jean Piaget, where he says, intelligence is what you use when you don't know what to do. And that that's is, great. Al- yeah, that has always stuck with me. And I think it aligns perfectly with that. What, what uh, uh, was it? Stone, Norman Stone, Norman Stone <laughs> was saying. And, uh, but then also I thought of uh, Rachel Maddow, who was a Rhodes Scholar and so, of course, of course, she excels in a corporate setting, spewing what I would characterize as propaganda. <laughs> but yes, yeah, I know you. You hate her. <laughs> I and, really do. Uh, maybe at some point we can talk about Rachel Maddow. Yes, um, I, I don't have the vitriol for her that you do. So that would be amusing to get. Yeah, on my problem. My real problem with her, maybe my maybe this story you just told will lessen my hatred because my problem with her has always been, and we, we don't have to go into this now, but my problem with her has always been that I thought she knew better. I thought, okay, she's smart. She's a Rhodes Scholar, highly educated. She knows what she's doing and she's doing it gleefully. She's misleading people gleefully. And, and in, in return for what is she, she makes literally like $10,000 a day or 30,000, like a ridiculous multi-million yeah, dollar contract. Very well paid because she, she uh, brings in the eyeballs. Right. At least she has. I think her audience, well, all of cable news has dropped off massively, but. Yeah. Well, yes, I, I'm uh, feeling the same. I don't want to call it constraint. That's not quite right. But since Trump has left, yeah. uh, I find my activity on Twitter has diminished magnificently, which right. means both a lot and happily. Yes. Um, <laughs> but with Rachel Maddow, I, I, I don't share your view that she's spewing propaganda and we can discuss that. I, sure. I, I, w- I cannot say that she, uh, I'm pretty sure she's not a useful idiot. I don't think she's being used by the network. Mm. Uh, she, okay. <laughs> I think both of us would agree that she's smart. The, and I would say, if you think she isn't, then I would urge you to read her books. That might give you a different view. Mm. That doesn't then let her off the hook for, as you say, spewing propaganda and misleading her audience. Right. Because she can do both things. Right. She can write very good books that are well documented, but she can also uh, spew propaganda and mislead. I don't know where that's happening in your <laughs> world, where you see that, but that may be a... Uh, either another conversation or we can, we can diverge if you, if you want to head in that direction. No, I think, I think that's something we should circle back to on a di- on another, on a, another okay. day, because okay. I do, I think it would be very interesting for us to delve into in particular uh, Russiagate, 
but also just linking that with what we talked about. And I think the first encounter relating to the epistemic divide and the sort of um, epistemological and informational bubbles uh, and communities that have cropped up, especially in the past five to 10 years in significant part owing to social media. That's just an overarching concern that goes back to Neil Postman and others for me. Yeah. And I, I know yeah. for you too. Yeah. Um, but I want to, I don't want to lose the thread of what we were talking about with education because I think there's still some more to be said. Um, Cause there's one, there's at least one major point that, that I want to explore, which is that the, the classroom as I view it and think of it is a political community. First and foremost, that's what it is. Um, so I just want to mention that, but, but I want to say, I want to, also talk about the types of students that the American education system is producing. Acquisitive. You, before you go on to that, can sure. you explain to me why you see it as a political community? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think it will, will dovetail. So I'll, I'll talk about it now and I think I'll okay. end up there as well. But for me, in, in a sense, so if we accept the for example, the sociological argument that I was making based on Bowles and Gintis's book, Schooling in Capitalist America, they posit, right, that there is uh, a community that is a political community that's coming into existence, being brought into existence as a result of what Dewey would describe as the conjoint activity of the students and the teacher and the the formal structure of the relationships among and between those groups, especially between teacher and student. But then this is mediated by content and other elements of the hidden curriculum, what we might call the hidden curriculum, like you mentioned, bell ringing and all sorts of other things that are, I would say, um, value laden or, uh, that sort of inculcate certain norms, social norms that have, that necessarily have a political cast to them. So that's sort of just my rough explanation for why I think of the classroom as a political community. But I mean, it's also just the fact that I, any gathering of humans, I think is necessarily a political community if we wanna get sort of Aristotelian about it, right? if we're not in a political community where they're either beasts or gods, every, everything is a political community. Well, except for any listeners and viewers who haven't read Aristotle, <laughs> I, I don't know that that, that that description is helpful because we don't, why don't you call it a cultural community? Why don't you call mm -hmm. it a social community? Why do you call it a political community? Sure. I guess to me, it is, it is a little sort of self-evident. And so it might be difficult to articulate off the top of my head, but it, it really has to do with those formal relationships between teacher and student, if we're talking in particular about the classroom, but also, I mean, you know, public education in this country at least is government mandated. Schools are government institutions. They are explicitly political in that sense. And 
uh, including down to the curricular level with the implementation of standardized testing that we were talking about earlier. So there are, at the very least, students are being acted upon by political forces. And I think that is also a significant part of the reason why in their capacity as students, much like we might say in, other, in adults' capacities as citizens, um, they are political agents in a political community. Now, whether they self-consciously realize that or have any meaningful avenues for modifying or even participating in that, you know, student government or whatever is a different question. But I do think that they are subjected to political forces and the community itself is, is also susceptible to political rearrangement, which is where I wanted to go with this. Okay. I, I, do you want pushback or would you just want yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, pushback. Okay. Uh, I don't know. On one level, I see that it's political. <laughs> on another level, I see that it's not a community. Okay. There is no community in school. It's not a community. Mm. It's a collection of people who are forced in, into a room with an authority figure. It's not a community because for me, uh, in, in fact, the first article I ever published was an article entitled The Veneration of Community, where I talked about what community means. At the very least, it means some kind of uh, identity formation that you identify with this collectivity. <laughs> I don't think any student identifies with the, with the classroom. They may identify with some students in it. You know, best these are my best friends. I don't even think, I think that's going too far. <laughs> so it's not a community in any way. I mean, you can turn it into a community. You can make it a community and the kinds of things you were doing, we talked about last time. Yeah. Where you're attempting to subvert your own authority. That, that is a way of beginning to come to grips with this idea. So maybe it's a, it is a potential community may be a better way to put it. It's a collection of persons uh, yes, in an that, enclosed space. <laughs> yeah, that's where I would go. Yeah. And, and the reason I think it's political is that it is a, a system for reinforcing, for reinforcing the values that the society holds highly for how to behave. Right. So you students will sit here. All of you students are equal. Some of you will soon distinguish yourselves. And certainly some of you will differentiate yourselves as being better at some things and less good at others. Some of you won't distinguish yourselves in any way at all. They'll be, the quickly hierarchies will develop and maybe we're lucky those hierarchies won't be the same across the board. Some of you are good in math and some of you read well and some of you interact with others well and some of you can teach well and some of you are great in a playground, fine. But all of you cannot equate yourselves with me, the teacher. So you might as well get used to the structure now that there's a hierarchy and this will continue in your life just the way that students are taught to respond to bells so that when they go to the factory, they can respond to whistles. So you will... You will have replicated in your school classrooms that have a political structure. Mm 
and a school that has a political structure because your teacher doesn't have the real authority that belongs with the principal who doesn't have the real authority that belongs with the school board who doesn't have the real authority that belongs to the superintendent who doesn't have the real authority that belongs to the governor. So, so it's just a replication, a step stepping down of these, of these political, of this political uh, structure. So that's what I see the replication Mm -hmm. at every level of what society kind of looks like and how the politics plays out, but it's not, it's political, but it's not a community. That's, that's, (laughs) that's the way I would say. I think that's fair. I think, I guess if we're taking the sort of um, the average uh, classroom in a public school across America, right? Where uh, things are, or maybe a better word is conventional, conventional classroom. Uh, it is exactly what you describe. But nevertheless, for me, uh, as I was sort of saying, like it contains the seeds of, a, of, a, of an authentic political community because it is a collection of persons, human beings, who are, again, if we accept Aristotle on this point, political animals. And if given the opportunity, they can create for themselves a political community instead of being coerced into sort of play acting, I think as you were kind of getting at or performing a theater of the community to come. Well, that that's too, too generous <laughs> because I don't even think they're, they're play acting. Uh, they are learning roles. They're mm. learning to follow rules. They're learning to accept certain roles. And those are roles that, that they will be asked to play out. And for many, the rules will change. For many, the roles will change. But what they're being accustomed to is fulfilling roles and rules. That's, that's the structure of society and the order into which they are uh, being trained. In the conventional classroom. In the conventional classroom. Now, wh- where this has, I, it raises for me a huge question that I want to ask you. Yeah. But it is so, it will take us maybe way, way out into a different arena. But, but here's the question. You're a revolutionary. Yeah. Okay. It sounds as if you want to see schools modified, uh, rethought, rebuilt, reimagined, restructured, as if, and this is the part that I'm really asking you about, as if you hold out hope for schooling, Uh. as opposed to what what appears you see as a democratic system that has to be destroyed, that can't be rethought, remodeled, restructured, modified. It has to be destroyed. You mean the the society of the United States in, in large? Yeah, the political system. The, yeah. The, the democratic system. <laughs> right, right. Air quotes for those who are listening. <laughs> uh, so it seems on the one hand, you, you see a way of, of remodeling, rebuilding, rethinking, reimagining schools on the other hand you see no hope for doing that with the political system right is that fair 
<laughs> Is that a fair categorization? I, I think yes, to an extent, uh, although we could maybe just soften it a little and say that there's this tension, right? There's this tension between my relative hopelessness regarding even simple reform to say nothing of revolution for the larger political system in contrast to my relative hopefulness regarding uh, you know, revolutionary education in the school system, right? Is that kind of what you're getting at? There's yeah, yeah. yeah two seemingly discordant perspectives. And so I guess I would say, uh, I think that that's a fair, you know, pretty fair characterization, but I, I don't, for me, it's not a problem. For me, that reflects what I view as, you know, perhaps the only solution, which is that I view, I view, uh, you know, politics, hold on a sec, I gotta pull this cat out of here once and for all, it's grabbing my camera. Come on, buddy. Um, so I view, I view even local, but certainly state and national politics in the United States as so distant and so um, insusceptible to average, average control or influence by normal citizens. I mean, think of the Gillens and Page study that I think you reference in What Hath Trump Wrought, the Princeton study from a couple of years ago that says the, the preferences of 90% of American citizens have no bearing on legislation passed by Congress, right? There's, there's a negligible relationship between voter preferences and legislation being passed. So in other words, we don't really, as you said with air quotes, we don't live under a democracy we're not able to influence or affect that our political system that we are subjected to in any meaningful sense. However, because I do recognize at least the potential for a political community in the classroom, this is a location, a limited political community, potentially, in which a single person, such as myself, single citizen actor in the world, can affect meaningful political change through the educational process. So that's the ghost in the machine. That's the virus in the system to me, in the matrix or whatever, the classroom. If we could have an army of Socrateses out there subverting shit in the educational system as it exists, then we might actually see uh, some meaningful political change, including especially serious reform or quasi-revolutionary change by a generation that has been equipped with the critical thinking skills and other uh, capacities to challenge and change that system. So do you see what that's, that, that's how I reconcile those and that's- Okay, I'm not quite there yet. So okay. let me ask you to clarify a little bit. Yeah. Uh, it, when you were describing the, I don't know that you said the army of Socrateses, but the-, the I think I did. <laughs> or the, let's call them the multitude of Socrateses. Well, Socrates was in the military, right? He might like having- he, Yes, army. he was in the military. Uh, 
didn't all always follow orders, as we know. Right. <laughs> but he wasn't, <laughs> still a lot. <laughs> he wasn't the military. Uh, but so you're imagining that through these kinds of insurrectionist revolutionary schools that pop up, you can educate uh, a multitude of Socrateses who will then replicate themselves in their own own values and their and their own uh, objectives. Yes. Right? So it becomes uh, like a virus that gets in the body politic. The real pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> the Socratic pandemic. The Socratic <laughs> pandemic gets in the body politic, uh, spreads its virus, creates mutants and different kinds of variants of, of different kinds of lethality, but that's what it's doing. It's, it's subverting and disrupting society. Yes. Okay. Now you see that because of the single uh, uh, germ of a classroom. Right. That if you could figure out a way to propagate more Rory's, Rory-like teachers, you would have more and more of these classrooms. Yes. Why doesn't the same system operate in the national political level for you? Well, I think in, I think the short answer is that there are no there are no comparable opportunities for the cultivation or even enactment of this type of subversion. So if we had, you know, deliberative democratic institutions, you know, maybe, maybe the jury, right? Maybe if everybody had, what is it, Henry Fonda in that? One of the Fondas, I think. If every- <laughs> 12 if Angry every, Men? Yeah, 12 Angry Men, yeah. yeah. If every jury had a, had a Fonda, then maybe we could see that in this type of subversive activity in that setting too. But we would need institutions to be very different and more in line with the kinds of institutions that you have argued for in your work, I think, uh, yes, but to, I th to provide I th opportunities, these types of opportunities. Well, I, maybe we're operating on, along the same track here. I, 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 it, my sense is that we are, but now I think you're going to uh, blow up the track. But <laughs> so it, it, it seems to me that if you are creating these kinds of thoughtful, impassioned, compassionate, empathetic, independent thinkers. They are going to want to subvert the system in order to make it more democratic. Yes. In other words, I don't see if, if you can create a multitude of Socrateses, why that won't translate into a more democratic system. And maybe uh, the reason I think you're, you're blowing up the track, and I may, might be wrong here, you may have just tied me on it, <laughs> is, is your use of the term revolutionary. If yeah. you're saying my view of, the, of schooling, what I have planned, what I'm thinking about is revolutionary, in that I want to create real communities in classrooms. And that translates then into the greater political operation. And that's what you mean by revolutionary, instead of literally blowing it up. 
um, then I think we're, we're on the same track. I think for me, it depends on what you mean by revolutionary. Yeah. Okay. I think I see what you're getting at. So there's probably at least two different senses in which I would use that word. So if I'm saying revolutionary from sort of my narrow personal perspective, my goals, my ideology, uh, my actions and efforts in the world, I have, you know, probably a more um, thorough and sort of uh, well thought out vision and, and program and plan for what that revolution might entail, you know, an anti-capitalist uh, revolution with the goal of implementing uh, communism, right? In my, in my own understanding of those terms. But I think at a more basic level, if we're sticking with the army of Socrates is out there and the, and the effect that that, that that might have, it's, it's revolutionary more so in the sense of being dissolutionary. Like it, because I think what, if we were to educate an entire generation of Americans in this fashion and they would enter into the established institutions and political realms that we have, their presence there, I think, would dissolve many of the oppressive and especially hierarchical arrangements that we have and clear the ground for the creation of new practices and potentially new institutions almost from within. So I, that's it. I'm being sort of deliberately vague because I don't know what all that would look like. I'm saying these people are going to go out into the world. And I think you use this image actually in maybe why does the world or one of your books, it's like waves crashing against the rocks or something. It's like this micro, these microcosmic actions by individuals in whatever setting in which they find themselves that will be transformative because of the type of person that they are and the education that they've had. And they can sort of spontaneously rearrange an institution or a workplace or whatever in accordance with the, those values and virtues. So in, that's this, the, the most basic sense in which I characterize this as revolutionary because I think that that would be revolutionary in the sense of transformative towards prevailing systems and established mm -hmm institutions you have used the term in in past encounters you use the term revolution and revolutionary in past encounters and for viewers and listeners and for me it conjures up uh, images because you haven't been clear as you have been now on what exactly you mean by it not, not that you've necessarily been really clear right now right but when you mention it my first thought is you're talking about armed violent revolution uh, and if if you don't mean that if you mean this idea of, about injecting into the bloodstream of the body politic these microbes called socrates socrateses and then see the effect the transformative effect that will have over time and because it's transformative, it is by, by your definition revolutionary, then I think there's a very different sense operating here. Mm -hmm. 
That's so, so yeah. Do you have something else or well, just to, just to say for greater clarification, are you talking about armed violent revolution or are you talking about something that is um I want to call it more subversive. That what could be more subversive than an armed violent revolution, <laughs> but something that is uh, that is an element that you see as contagious. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be something that's small, and there are going to be many of them, and their effect will be transformative. But as you say, it might be of a workplace, it might be of an association, it might be of a school or a state government or a local government, whatever. Those things will be multiplied. Like that, that will have the multiplier effect that will then begin this uh, propagation across the, across the country and maybe across the globe. Mm. So is it armed violent revolution or is it this idea about a more clandestine kind of operation? Well, this is where, you know, to, now to stretch the sort of railroad metaphor that you introduced, it's like now we have two tracks that are diverging. We, and so what I mean by that is sort of what I alluded to earlier. There's uh, a narrower sort of programmatic political revolution that I may or may not endorse. I have to be careful with my words here because the alphabet boys surveilling me, uh, <laughs> you know, are, would surely love any excuse to fuck with me. Um, but the that's that's separate and so i might say for example given the historical reality of u.s imperialism and uh especially against the timeline of planetary ecocide owing to petrocapitalism etc cetera, etc cetera, i someone who typically identifies as a pacifist might use something like other climate activists have used called the necessity defense They've used this in court to justify their monkey wrenching of pipelines, for example. I might say an armed insurrectionary movement against global capital, including especially the United States government, is necessary, urgently necessary for their survival, not just of human life, but, but all, all complex life on earth. And I might build out a vision of revolution from that perspective. That's on one track. On the other track is the, this more like idealist, idealistic, long-term um, vision of transformative education that would be revolutionary in the sort of uh, in the aggregate, but but through disaggregated actions of individual Socrates is springing up on mass and affecting transformative change in the political arena in that fashion. So do you see how I'm, mm -hmm. I'm separating those? So I yeah. would love for that idealistic vision of transformative education in the long term and among the general population to be feasible and all these kinds of things, because I think it could lead to much more peaceful, a much more peaceful kind of revolution. Um, that would simply that we might simply characterize as, you know, development or growth. But in the narrower sense of 
the historical contingencies that I personally find myself in, and you do too, and all of us have been thrown into through the accident of birth, I would argue, or I might entertain an argument that says we need to overthrow the United States government because it is, as Chomsky says of the Republican Party, the most dangerous organization in human history. Okay. Uh, well, that clarifies it. <laughs> and to the, uh, what did you call them? The alphabetizers? No. The, <laughs> the alphabet boys. <laughs> the alphabet boys listening. I have nothing to do with this. Uh, I, I just don't know why. I suppose you, you see, you're looking at this from two different contexts. One is the need for, for drastic action if we're going to save the species and the planet. The other is sort of an un, a, a rolling out of possibilities by creating new kinds of educational institutions or transforming current kinds of educational institutions that might allow for a peaceful transition that, that over the, the, a peaceful transition for which there is insufficient time to save the planet. Yes, even if it could be implemented. Even which if it could be implemented. It can't, you know, <laughs> in reality. Right. But. So uh, what is the alternative for the, the political revolution to save the planet? Is there any alternative? It brings us back to the benevolent, beneficent dictator. Right? Yes. I mean, what, what would you have to see? Okay, can you imagine in our within our current political structures worldwide, any kind of movement that could save the planet. I mean, beyond, beyond imagining, yes, here's what has to be done, therefore it could be done, <laughs> right? Do you see any scenario in which you would, you would say, as things get worse, people will come to realize that something has to be done and we will have time to do it? Or you're saying, no, that time is right now. Yeah. This is it. Unless you wake up right now, there's nothing that can be done except some sort of direct action against governments. Well, okay, let's yeah. I would say I'm going to make it even darker. <laughs> okay. Because um I would say no, I don't think there's anything that can be done within established sort of systems and practices. In other words, we can't, we can't vote our way out of this. Um, but even more, even more to the point, and I felt this way from day one, when I first decided to get involved with Extinction Rebellion, I felt like, or I knew that it was the case that even if it, this movement, which I, you know, was a direct action, decentralized movement of direct action, and civil disobedience aimed at abrupt, uh, really revolutionary 
and transformative political change, as Chris Hedges characterized it when I was on his show. It was about a transfer of power from, from the corporate elites and the corporate apparatus to uh, ac actual people, citizens, average people in the world, transfer of power. Uh, but that, even if that succeeded, or it couldn't succeed because it was already too late. So I view basically our situation as a species under climate change, planetary climate breakdown, as analogous to an individual who has shot himself in his garage with the car running and is in the process of committing suicide by carbon monoxide inhalation. And so that our, that's us. We're the guy in the car. We're, we're the species in the car on the planet. And we're inhaling the products of combusted fossil fuels. Extinction Rebellion, in my view, and any other direct action or even revolutionary mo movement amounts to nothing more than the dying dream of that guy who is nodding off and irrevocably approaching uh, death. In other words, there's nothing we can do. It's just okay, a dream. So, so nothing can be done. No. We're, we're too far along with, uh, with petrified institutions, petrified in the sense of petrified wood, petrified institutions that are sclerotic and can't, can't act fast enough either because of the, the nature of the structure or the human beings who operate within the structure. And those are that's probably redundant. Yeah. So, so that's where we are. That, so let me just say that, yes, 100% that, and that's intersecting with or parallel with whatever image works better with like sort of the empirical reality, the objective thermodynamic reality that is not susceptible to change even if we didn't have those fucked up ossified institutions you were just right. talking okay. about. Okay. That raises then a question for me about why you undertake to do the pacifist utopian let's transform the schools idea. Why bother? Yeah. And shouldn't your dissertation really be that argument? The argument between the person who wants to transform schools and the person who's saying, what the fuck are you doing? It's too late. It <laughs> well, doesn't matter I, what you do. Little think, Socrateses aren't going to have any effect. I think that's the path that it will take, actually. And those are two, that, that tension, again, is, uh, is present within me personally, but also I think it's inherent in the struggle of life against death, and especially in the face of impending doom. So in other words, that's why I like the sort of, what's it called, conceit. I like the conceit and what I'm intending to pursue in the dissertation is the conceit of the, con the consideration of whether or not to have a child in today's world. But the reality is that life is gonna continue to, to propagate, right? People are gonna keep having kids, even people 
even people like David Wallace Wells, for example, the writer for New York Magazine, you're familiar with him, yeah. who uh, wrote a, one of the most um, sort of piercing pieces in the mainstream media about climate apocalypse. He has kids. I've corresponded with him a little bit and he has kids. Uh, and, and in my view, it clouds some of his thinking. Um, but so that tension is uh that's the most fundamental tension life and death the struggle to perpetuate and continue living in the face you know if you're an individual with a terminal illness do you just roll over and die or do you you know go skydiving and cross things off your bucket list for as long as you can same sense applies to the species and the same thing applies to me as an individual with this awareness i enjoy being able to, uh, I guess, to teach in this fashion, to be Socratic. Uh, you know, that's, that's how I operate. That's what I like to do. And, you know, also, what if I'm wrong? I could be fucking wrong. I could be crazy. I am crazy. <laughs> yes, but that's an independent of your, of your outlook. Right. And so I'm saying this is, this is intrinsically worth doing, educating in this fashion. Again, uh, to, you know, defer to Chris Hedges, he says people, when people ask him why he writes and engages in the type of activism that he does, and I think he pulled this quote from Sartre, he says, I, I don't fight fascists because I'll win. I fight fascists because they're fascists. So I do it because it's the right thing to do, even though I probably won't succeed. That's yeah. my educational thing in the face of doom. Well, I, I, I think I liked the, the first way you formulated it because it resonated with me. Okay. And that way is to say, like the terminal patient, <laughs> this is how I want to spend my waning years. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I like to do. I think they're, unlike you, I am not optimistic about the outlook for humankind and the planet, but I am hopeful. And right. because I'm hopeful, um, because I think as we've talked about in the past, that human cockroaches will continue to, to live yeah, they will. They may very well need. I think they will need uh, what the Greeks called theorine, theoros. They need vision. The reason that I love political theory is that it it's laying out in normative terms a vision for what you hope like like life could be like, and it may very well be that not that you're wrong but your timeline is wrong. So right. somehow we are able to extend the decline over, over millennia. Uh, and it would be helpful as the decline continues to have visions of how life could be lived, how we can prepare ourselves for this life within the context of decline that can still be a life that is fruitful and rewarding. 
I agree completely. That's also why I love political theory. And it reminds me of that line. I don't remember the full dialogue, but that portion in the Republic where, uh, you know, one of the interlocutors is saying, uh, you know, to Socrates, can we, can this actually be put into practice? And if it can't be, what the fuck are we doing it for? And he basically says, it's still, it doesn't matter if it can be put into practice. It has enormous value for some, I think the reasons you just described to gain, glean insight from as an yeah. alternative to, or, or possibilities for different ways of living. Yeah. So, Yeah. I know that's a nice way for you to say, <laughs> you know, my work has merit even uh, uh, in the face of its likely, um, in things likely going a different way, right? For so you. you. You don't think, you have a different uh, understanding of the timeline. You don't necessarily subscribe to my beliefs on this, but you still say, hey, this is this is valuable. No, no, I think you are probably right on the timeline because you're not making it up you are following the science right and uh, this is what we're being told we have so many years what is it now 14 years to 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 completely redirect our societies right or we're or the planet will survive we we know we cannot overcome what is what is about to unfold we we've been through that we the climate change is happening, will continue to happen. There's nothing we can do about that. We're talking about long, long, long term. Right. What we might be able to do to survive. So I don't have any problem with the timeline, nor do I have any problem with what you laid out, which is this is what I, I do and want to do with what time I have remaining. This is valuable in and of itself. Now, there is also the, the utilitarian possibility that what you're describing can be put into effect, which will have beneficial effects on those on on others, mm. which I also think makes it worthwhile to do. So for me, look, I'm going to be dead before. I mean, things will be shitty, but uh, and could very well accelerate in its shittiness. But I've only got at what to be realistic, twenty years probably. Okay, that that's you're in your just out of your prime or in your prime in 20 years. <laughs> Let me cling to the prime for a few more years, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got yeah, you've got you've got your prime coming. They're there you not go. there yet. Exactly. Yeah, so um, mine is come and gone. So for me, it's uh, it, it's not, you know, something as grandiose as leaving a legacy for those who will follow. But it is to say it's possible within the most disturbing cultural, political, social, economic climate we can imagine and geological climate we can imagine to have a life that is in some way fulfilling. How do we do it? What does that need to look like? Uh, yes. So like you, I'm not interested, as Mark said, in, in predicting the, the soup kitchens of the, the future <laughs> of the future uh on the other hand there are different kinds of soup kitchens that can be had and i want to know what those could look like and paths to them yes yeah i don't know what the hell that meant <laughs> no i mean it just reminded me there's a quote from 
Is it Plotinus or Plotinus? How would you say that? Plotinus. Plotinus. Okay. That's how I would say it too, but I've heard it both ways and I never know well, how to pronounce shit. If it's Latin, <laughs> it's Plotinus. Well, fuck that. I don't like that. <laughs> Fine. Uh, but we would say Plotinus. Uh, I mean, this is the this is a, a sidebar in our ongoing conversation, but I am sort of a stickler for pronouncing eyes in Greek as as wise. Okay. Right. So I wouldn't say theoria or theoria. I would say theoria. Oh, interesting. Right. So it's yes. Yeah, so eyes are for me are wise because I don't know. When is it not in ways that we understand words? Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I've always, you know, we don't myself, say, yeah, what? it's just, you know, Dionysus. We don't say Dionysus. It's Nike. It's not Niki. True. Yeah. I can't really think of any off the top of my head where that would not hold. Anyway, so it, Plotinus, I as a Y is fine with me. Okay, good. Then I'm going to roll with that. So Plotinus, there's a quote from Plotinus. Where there's a quote from Plotinus where, where he says, Plotinus. where he says, uh, knowledge of future things is in a word identical with knowledge of present things. And so when you were saying what you were saying a moment ago, that came to mind for me, uh, because that's sort of, that's, that's what I'm you know, how I'm thinking and how I'm approaching things. It's like, I'm not, I'm not trying to, as you said, with the reference to Marx, create the recipes for the soup kitchen of the future or whatever, right. or to leave some grand legacy. It's like, I'm just grappling with my perception of the present and trying to translate it into something that makes sense for me. And yeah. especially connects with how I would like to see things change. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm completely on board with you there. It's the uh, it, it's the interesting position you've now you've laid out about the need for revolutionary action, direct political action. But at the same time, uh, as you are as you're marching in the streets, you've got a notebook and you're writing down a couple of things that oh yeah that just struck me. Yes, you're not going to stop writing down things that you think are going to be beneficial uh, or important to you or that make sense to you. Um, but yes, you know, you know where you're headed when you're marching down the street. You know why you're doing it, where you're going. Right. Uh, so for me, let me maybe even end this, this encounter since yeah, we've been going on for a while time. with a, uh, a quotation from a different philosopher, and that's uh, Woody Allen. I was just watching Alan versus Pharaoh on HBO. Have you watched that documentary series yet? I have watched it. I'm only uh, halfway through, so. Okay, there is another, there is another uh, documentary you should watch, which uh, Dana Birch turned me on to. Dana is a mutual friend of ours. Yep. Well, hang on. Dana is a friend of mine. Frenemy of mine. <laughs> Frenemy of Rory's. Who, uh, on YouTube called, by the way, Woody Allen is Innocent, okay. which is very good and definitely worth watching. I'll, I will watch it after I finish this one yeah. then. 
Uh, but anyway, so in, in the movie Annie Hall, and regardless of what you think of Woody Allen, I don't believe you can say that uh, he isn't funny. <laughs> Honestly, I've only seen one of his movies and I, I don't think he's funny. I find him, well, I'll, I won't rain on your parade. What Tell was me the what movie? You're... What was the one? Bananas. Where... Is Bananas the one where he's in the courtroom and he's cross-examining himself? It was a long time ago. That sounds, that sounds right. Maybe, or like maybe that, a... no, I'm thinking of take the money and run, I think, or. I think it's like a military type setting. I seem to remember yeah, a tank yeah. at some point. Yes, I, I, I don't remember that very well. But anyway, yeah. um, in Annie Hall, the young Alvy Singer, who is, let's, let's face it, he's really uh, Woody Allen. <laughs> right. It lives in Coney Island <laughs> under a roller coaster. Damn. And uh, he's depressed. And so his mother take him, takes him to the doctor and says, what's the matter? And she says, he's depressed all the time. Tell him why you're depressed. And the young Alvy Singer says, the world is expanding. And the doctor <laughs> says, so what? So the world is expanding. So what's the point? It's just going to it's just gonna, gonna blow up. Yeah, the heat the death doctor of the said, <laughs> The doctor says, yes, the world is expanding. But that's not going to happen for billions and billions of years. So we have to learn to enjoy ourselves while we're here. That's where we are. I agree. I agree completely. All right. Perfect. Good, good talking with you. Great talking with you. Until next time. Is there a next time? Will there I be hope, a next time? I hope so. And that's, you know, that's the only thing that could take us out, nuclear or asteroid, I feel like between this and the next encounter. Yeah, the asteroid, I think, might give us some time. The scientists are pretty good about identifying what's coming. So <laughs> we may we may have a couple of weeks. There you go. Nuclear exchange. Wow. That one, if, it, if it's uh, superpowers, major powers, yeah, that one's going to be bad. Mutually assured destruction. Put on your tinfoil hat. <laughs> All right. All right, Rory. See you, Jack. Good talking to you.
Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. <laughs> 